The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Dude, I've got to ask you, is your weather currently as changeable as mine is? I mean, it's so weird between here and Memphis. When I look at a weather report, I can't tell from the weather report which city I'm looking at. (laughs) Um, I mean, things are, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we settled that. <laughs> yeah, we are. So when I got up this morning, um, factoring in wind chill, there was a degree outside. All of a know, degree? Just the one. Okay. Um, which actually wasn't too terrible. But um, the other day, it was like 50 uh-huh. and raining. Then we had an unforecast snowstorm that put four or five inches of snow on the ground. <laughs> uh, then it turned frigidly cold, which is where we are now. And then it's supposed to be 50 and raining, 55 and raining by the end of the week. So, yeah, it's it's schizophrenic. Yeah, I um, I, I mean, like I would be willing to accuse uh, our climate of being bipolar. Yeah. I, I mean, aside from the fact that on a certain literal sense, that's actually true. But um, yes. uh, <laughs> what with the two poles and all. Right. But I I mean, here in Santa Rosa, it's been down below freezing and it's been up above 70. And in Memphis, it's been down below freezing and up above 70. Memphis yeah. is getting more rain than Sonoma County is. Not that anyone's surprised by that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's really kind of weird. I, there are times I open my phone and I have to scroll back up to make sure, Oh, you're, you're looking at the place you're actually in, not the place you will be in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I am. I check, I go up to Vermont quite a bit to ski. And so I'm checking multiple weathers too. And sometimes you see snow and you're like, that must be Vermont. Nope. That's here. (laughs) Nope. It's going to rain in Vermont. Okay. That doesn't make sense. But okay. Yep. All right. I actually, I was skiing a few weeks ago and I rode uh, up the lift with a guy who is a sugarer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, he's got a patch of uh, trees that he sugars uh, near, like actually behind one of the ski mountains. And, uh, you know, a big part of their... what. <laughs> Yeah, can't say words. <laughs> a big part of uh, what affects their yield year to year is the weather. And what they require yeah. is this schizophrenia. Warm, cold, warm, cold, warm, cold. Because they need the trees to think, oh, it's spring. Send up the sap. Oh, no, it's not. Shut it down. Oh, it's spring. Send up the sap. Oh, no, it's not. Shut it down. Yeah. They need that fluctuation to get a really good 
Yeah, it's got to drop below freezing at night, but rise above freezing during the day so that the sap can actually flow. I remember reading all about that when I first moved to New England because my grandfather was a Vermonter and he turned Uh, me on to maple sugar candy and maple syrup and grade B maple syrup. And yeah. Yeah. So I like I learned all about it and um, continue to be fascinated by all things maple. Yeah, it was good. You know, maple syrup is more valuable than crude oil. Um, I agree. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true uh, economically as well. This guy was telling me that he works pretty hard eight weeks of the year. <laughs> and the rest of the time, the rest of the time. Yeah, he definitely, somebody uh, let him in on a secret is what happened. <laughs> I, how big a patch of trees does he work? Maybe I, I need to consider a change in, in career or or it would give me a lot more time for podcasting. There's that. That's true. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I got a lot. I got a whole uh, primer on the vagaries of the syrup business and how you know the real um the real way to get rich uh relatively speaking in maple syrup is to sell direct is to sell your syrup directly to consumers oh well sure but you can sell to a cooperative which will buy all you know you don't have to worry about selling like you Uh can sell everything you can make to the cooperative, but then year by year, you try to change the percentage you sell direct versus to the cooperative and uh, really, really interesting. And then and how, you know, it's it's a stable it's a stable product, so you can barrel it uh, and it'll keep for years at a time. And so some people will hold certain bits and release it later. And wait, so like there's vintage maple syrup. Um, I don't think it's vintage in the way that wine is vintage. Oh, but well. if you get a bottle of maple syrup, and I'm talking about actual maple syrup, not like a maple infused corn syrup like you would find <laughs> right. from, uh, but an actual maple syrup, it may have been um, sugared or whatever the right word is mm-hmm. um, some years prior. Okay. Huh. Well, um, you know, There's I guess a, bully for them. There is a great documentary on Netflix, I think, about a robbery at the Canadian National Syrup Reserve, where many millions of dollars worth of syrup was stolen. You know, there were there were wine thefts uh, in France, like mm. like in the dark of night, sometimes. Uh, the the big food rays would be drained. This is like a barrel, only much larger. Uh, mm. And also, like whole vineyards got picked in the dark of night, uh, <laughs> like you know, a couple days early. Yeah, um, it's that's interesting. So Canada has a Fort Knox of maple syrup. They do. The mind reels. Uh, okay, uh, maybe should we, we should talk about, about cycling now. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's we. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you taking us? Um, well, today I'm going to let, this is going to get weird. 
Oh, well, that's a relief because we haven't done that before. Yes. Uh, I'm going to let you in on sort of a large scale project of mine that encompasses physics, psychology, philosophy, biology, linguistics, and endurance sports. You mean life? Yeah. Yes. I'd say yes. That's correct. Um, And if it sounds hopelessly ambitious and a little cracked, uh, then I think you've understood perfectly what I'm trying to do. So here's, here's the premise. Most of us walk around on the streets or ride, if you prefer. This is a cycling podcast. Uh, most of us perceive the world in what I'd call a Newtonian way. Complete with gravity. Right. In other words, we have a sense of the world that comes from the basic, observable, though no less brilliant, tenets of Newtonian physics. Uh-huh. Um, that makes a lot of sense because Newtonian physics is highly experiential, right? It's, it's based on uh, an observable world that predates most of the instrumentation we have now. Yeah, yeah. It's demonstrably repeatable. Yeah. yeah, you can relate to it. You take your high school physics class, you get a lot of examples walking around in the world. The thing is, physics has moved on. <laughs> this is true, yeah. We're living in an Einsteinian world mm-hmm. uh, with all these little implications for how time operates, how our perceptions are limited by our human scale, mm-hmm. uh, and our innate ability to deal with both very large and very small numbers. Mm-hmm. My idea is that we'll have a better, more successful, more enjoyable life if we can adapt our thinking and behavior to the updated truths of contemporary physics. Uh, please continue. So, this is where it gets weird, because uh, the, the truth of how the world works... Physically, uh, even on the quantum level, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, smaller th- subatomically, can affect, it can change our attitudes. It can change how we analyze our behavior and how we express ourselves. So, as one small, simple example, think of the worst day you've had on a bike in the last year. Get it in your head and then tell me roughly what it means about a ride you might take today. Uh, well, hopefully very little. Hopefully very little. But um, even in saying hopefully very little, you would draw a connection between those two events. Well, yeah, because there's a, there's a fair chance I could end up riding that same bike again and it's still me riding said bike and... That ride happened here in Sonoma County. So we're starting with three data points that, uh, sure. yeah, echo. So I'm with you and I buy that and we do operate that way on a daily basis. But here's the trick. The past doesn't exist. Right. Oh, it doesn't boy. exist in any concrete or discrete way. There's no objective past. Oh, that we that's can- true. Yeah. that we can all see and agree upon. And so the worst day you've had on the bike in the last year rapidly becomes a story that you've settled on in order to project meaning onto your present. Okay. 
Are you I, with me? Yeah, I'm with you. It's mm-hmm. like a way to validate your feelings, which themselves don't exist. Uh, I wish I could convince some other people of that, but you yeah. know, again, please continue. Yeah. So we're constantly editing these stories and shifting these feelings uh, for consistency with our sense of ourselves. We're, we're creating a narrative arc that's, yep. based, that's based on nothing, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Right? Some chemicals and electricity uh, moved around in your brain, and you formed an impression that colors your present and your future. Yeah. So once we're able to alter our relationship to the past, you know, we sort of like take the juice out of the past. Uh Uh-huh. The present gains power and possibility. And when you're engaging in endurance sports, see, I'm almost there. Uh Uh-huh. And marshalling all your mental and physical energy to continue forward, little things like this start to make a big difference. Okay. So obviously I've made a huge set of logical leaps there. It's a long way from there is no objective past to, um, you know, now it's easier to be power, you know, make decisions in the present. Um, that's kind of the best I can do in this format. There's a massive synthesis of information required to draw lines from the realm of physical science to the to the language we use to express that and how it sort of proscribes the ways in which we can think about these things. But I bring it up because I have found a deeper understanding of time specifically has made my writing much better. Okay. And of course, you can't do go very deep in your thinking about time without getting into physics. And before you know it, you've got a massive stack of books next to your bed and your eyesight's starting to go. Um, I've done a bunch of writing about this stuff without making a ton of progress, but it's an overarching progress that I'm plugging in, uh, hopefully, in all of my work uh, and also every time I ride. But but I think what I see mostly is during hard efforts or during long efforts, being able to compartmentalize my experiences in a way that keeps the suffering from compounding. Hmm. Does this, does that make, does, have I struck a note there? It doesn't make sense, but I'm intrigued because I think I want me some of that. Yeah. It's about, um, you know, as a, as an example, um, catastrophe theory, right? So catastrophe theory says that, um, the linearity of events isn't guaranteed, Mm -hmm. and that sometimes, uh, what appears to be a stable reality will give way catastrophically. Yep. Yep. And I think about this a lot of times when I'm on the trail and, you know, it's rooty and rocky, things are difficult. And invariably I have the idea, well, it can't get worse than this. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, and this is in part, um, the human uh, tendency toward pattern recognition, right? A lot of the way we navigate the world is we project or we infer patterns from incoming perceptions. Yeah. We look for patterns based on what data we have. Right. So I'm on the trail and I, and it, 
things are ramping up and getting harder, and that makes sense. I have entered the trail. I expect things to become harder, and then they're hard, and I think they can't get harder. They definitely can. In fact, this trail could become completely impassable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it could be completely clear. Yep. I don't know. Um, and just as the conditions externally can change in that in that way in that unknowing way conditions internally can change in that unknowing way uh-huh and and so the message to me is manage the present moment don't be distracted by the past and don't think too much about the future okay uh-huh. and when you are, and when you're at the point the end of things this becomes a, a really valuable thing to do And it it clarifies your thinking about what you're doing. And it helps you focus on the things that you actually need to do. Not in the future, but like right now. In order to continue. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I agree with all of that. Uh, I will note that I have a certain personal limitation that means that for me to get to where you're talking about, I have to, I have to take a slightly different trail. Uh, if I tell myself not to think about something. <laughs> yeah. So instead what I do is I just try to make things challenging enough that I literally can't think about anything else except the present moment. Yeah, no, I think that that's common. I have that experience too. And that's a lot of the the way we come into flow states, right? Yep. You ramp up the challenge to the point that it crowds out all the other nonsense and focuses your thinking. Yeah. And I'm saying that you can do that without that level of challenge with a little bit of uh, mental training. And I, I, I would be lying if I told you I was great at it, but <laughs> um, I, I, this stuff sort of cascades out very quickly and attaches itself to everything, right? You know, like yep. if, you have, if you have conflicts in your life with other people, um, the way that uh, you, you can break down the reality of the experience you're having and compartmentalize things brings clarity. Yep. So it, it sort of goes everywhere. And I, I, I even, I don't, I'm not sure I should have brought it up here today because it's such a sprawling <laughs> thing that I don't know if I can get to it all today, but I've been reading, I've been reading an awful lot of physics um, and physics of the type that blurs into philosophy quite a bit. Uh, Because you realize in talking about science, a lot of times we have linguistic limitations. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, our language, for example, is um, replete with references to time. Yeah. Um, So that talking about um, the conditions, for example, at the beginning of the universe becomes very difficult because we are always projecting timescales onto them. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. This all sounds crazy today, doesn't it? <laughs> I've said it out loud. <laughs> well, I mean, 
But what you're pointing toward is, you know, something that's essentially, you know, meditative in nature. That's right. You know, to just start by sheer force of will, shutting down the parts of your brain that are constantly nattering away. Right. And, and, and in doing that, recognizing that that nattering, you know, we have a tendency to give it license uh, because we think it, there's, that's real information. It's not real information. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, uh, that voice, you know, he has voting rights in my head and I keep trying to take away his, uh, his ballot. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm routinely, you know, it's like he keeps getting another ballot, you know, and and voting on stuff. And I'm like, no, you don't. Uh, so there's this constant war I have. Um, It's pleasant enough, you know, it never gets violent, but, you know, yeah. the, the implications of some of his votes are <laughs> really not helpful. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And it, I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you look at how you broke a thing down in retrospect and you think, oh, OK, I didn't get that right. Oh, you mean like most of the emails I sent? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's not true. <laughs> Just the really important ones. Right. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, all the work, all the personal work that I've done and the last, you know, like two and a half years now, um, the thing when I look at, uh, well, pattern recognition, you know, when I start mm. to look at larger patterns that have emerged in all this, it's, you know, to no one's surprise, the calmer and more centered I am, the le- it's not just that the thoughts don't bother me or the thoughts don't creep in or whatever. There are just fewer of those thoughts. Mm. Uh, it's, um, you know, there's not, there, there aren't as many fish in the water. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think, I think, uh, uh what happens, and this is, you know, we're living in a time uh, of the age of conspiracy theories, and my, my feeling is that uh, conspiracy theory is really a, just a massive failure of pattern recognition. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we, in our heads, as we walk around as people, and, and you know, we can take this to the bike, as we ride around on the bike and, and try to think about the problems, the challenges we have just with riding a bike – um, we are often imposing a pattern that's not actually there. And so if you can sort of free your mind up and not at some point need a pattern because you're not projecting into the future and trying to understand what's coming, you're, you are where you are and you're pedaling where you're pedaling. And, and I'm afraid I'm about to say it is what it is. Uh, you know, that can be a, a better, purer, uh, more satisfying experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, every now and then I'll be, it, it this happened on Sunday. Um, you know, I was out in West County on a mountain bike ride, uh, thanks to a friend who loaned me a mountain bike. <laughs> And I'm on this climb and because my fitness is not great, all my friends are further up the trail than I am. I'm all alone by myself and uh, I'm suffering away and the nattering 
is going in my head. And there came a point where I was like, you know, let's let's just look at the trail and focus on the I was passing through this highly eroded section that's a little rutted and whatnot. And it's like, how about this? What do you say, self, that we just focus on the land right here and make sure that we're taking the the op- most optimal line, you know, the one that is smooth and most direct through all this? What do you say we focus on this thing that's actually a little bit challenging? And, you know, if you can get through this a little quicker, you won't be quite so far behind as you have been. Um. And so, yeah, that act of just like, let's look at what the land is. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was helpful. Um, you know, another interesting data point along these lines. Um, I spent some time Saturday afternoon talking with uh, the son of a friend of mine, uh, a kid I used to race against at the dirt crits uh, here at Haworth Park. I was 50 some odd and we were in the sea race and he was all of 13 and he was beating me. Um, and, uh, as it turns out, I've gotten slower and he's gotten faster. Yeah. That checks out. Um, but would that be the second law of ther- thermodynamics? Uh, the arrow of time things go from yep. bad to worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but so, Last summer, uh, he did an Everest Mm -hmm. and he did what is, I, I think without having researched all other Everest efforts on the bike, I think I can go ahead and just take a flyer and say it was the dumbest, craziest Everest (laughs) anyone has ever done. So, you know, people will, will. They will debate like, well, how steep a road should it be? You know, it shouldn't be so steep that you flame your legs, you know, partway through. And you don't want it to be so steep that you have to break on the way down. But you don't want it so shallow that you're doing a billion trips up it. Mm -hmm. He did a stupidly steep gravel road in Sonoma County. Mm -hmm. He, He Everested on a gravel bike. Mm. on a road so steep that you cannot freewheel your way down. Yeah. That's what it's like to be 19. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the reason I bring it up is like he, he did 34 trips up freeze out road. And there came a point where he started to name tree stumps and rocks and yeah. you know it's like oh yeah i know this place that's you know so and so tree and uh it says a certain sort of thing about truly being in the moment if you've seen something so many times that you've decided okay i'm going to name it this you you might be right where you are yeah 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 it's a real thing it's a real thing i didn't i i never want to use the word mindfulness because i think it's been so abused it doesn't mean anything anymore but but it is that sort of um letting detaching from uh the moment you're in all of the stuff that is extraneous to it and when i have been at the limits of my endurance this has become very helpful Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely 
All righty. Well, I say we leave this one alone at this point. Uh, I think the horse isn't quite dead, but let's <laughs> let's live it ha- let it have some dignity. Uh, yes. We're going to take a break, and we will be back in just a minute. The Pace Line is brought to you by the Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported, with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Land the plane for us, Patrick. What, what, what do you got? Uh, well, this one will dial back the challenge a little bit. I got a question through the Book of Faces last weekend, and one that's pretty timely given that winter will be coming to an end in many places, at least for a little bit, while in others, like here in Santa Rosa, spring is mostly well underway. Uh, everything's in blossom, and I'm about to start to have to take antihistamines. So my question comes from Mike, who only said he's back east, and he wondered about gravel tire selection for some upcoming events he's planning to do. His big question regarding uh, regarded selecting a tire for traction relative to the terrain. So uh, when I'm choosing a tire for gravel rides, I have a little logic tree that I use. It's pretty simple, I think. Uh, the first question I ask myself is if there will be much mud, um, if conditions will be muddy, I ask another question, will there be rock in most of the places <laughs> I've written? You don't often get lots of slick mud along with rock. Um, it's been a while since I've ridden in new England. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, cause I know I would carve out an exception for Western Massachusetts that way. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, in the event that mud will be plentiful, but there won't be much or maybe even any rock, then I go with a narrow tire. Uh, think cyclocross on the order of 32 millimeters wide. Um, I've, I've even had 28 millimeter wide cross tires, but I don't have any of those these days. Um, when there's mud, it's really important to get the tire to sink through the mud so that the, the knobs can bite into the soil below. Um, if you've ever watched any of the uh, more peculiar Southern forms of uh, motorsport, there are these devices <laughs> that tear through mud bogs and bayous and whatnot. And they have wheels that are very large in diameter um, and run tires that are relatively speaking, very narrow in diameter. And that's to get to the bottom where, yeah, the stuff actually gets a little firmer. But on the other hand, if conditions will be rocky, I go with a wider tire in order to reduce the possibility of rim flats, uh, of flats and rim dings. Um, If I might encounter some wet 
or muddy spots on occasion, I'll choose a tire with some knobs, but not big knobs. Um, if the surface is firm and dry, I'll go with a tire that is close to being slick with only side knobs. Here, I'm thinking in terms of specific tires, uh, a tire like the Donnelly Sport USH. Um, if conditions are dry but loose uh, and maybe even sandy, again, I'll go with a tire with lots of small knobs. Uh, great examples, the Panaracer Gravel King, Gravel King SK um, and the Donnelly MSO, the Explorer MSO and the Goodyear Connector are all favorites. Um, two things to keep in mind relative to the conditions that you're riding in are that one, in mud, you're going to have to steer the bike more than counter steer. That means standing the bike up and steering gently through turns rather than leaning the bike over to carve a turn. Uh, in my experience, if I do that, my hip will pick up a nice coating of mud. Um, and I've done plenty of that. Uh, in the case of dry but a bit loose, even if there's no rock, I still recommend the widest tire your bike can take because big tires break away in turns more slowly and predictably. The skinnier the tire, the more likely you are to have a tire break loose suddenly and then, as I mentioned, wind up on your hip. Uh, it's worth mentioning that while you want a mud tire to sink, in really sandy conditions, you want the exact opposite. You want the tire to float on top of the sand, which is why wider tires are the call there. Uh, I'm going to tell a little story to help illustrate my thinking. So some years back, I did a gravel event where the dirt portion was mostly hard pack and mostly really smooth. But there was a spot that was very sandy and another spot that was super rocky. Having ridden much of the course previously, I chose a tire that I knew would handle okay in the sandy stuff and would float over all the decomposing granite. Now, the tire I chose was slow on all the really fast sections of the course, but it floated through the sand awfully well, and when I got to the rock, it rolled over that stuff without flatting. Plus, I was more comfortable, which is uh, a thing for me uh, due to my spinal stenosis. Uh, if, I, if I pinch one of the nerves in my neck uh, or shoulder, I get really, really incredible pain that causes me to pull over. Um, but the upshot to all this is that I never fell and I never flatted. I'm not fit enough to have been con in contention for the podium, but it was satisfying to only stop when I chose to stop. Uh, my point is that it's important to pick a tire relative to the most demanding part of the course, not the fastest part of the course. What would you add, John? Wow. I mean, you, what you just did there was pretty encyclopedic. Um, I guess, I guess um, I would ask myself, what do I want out of this event? Am I trying to go fast? You know, am I with a group that's trying to hammer it out and, and, and have fun in that way? Mm -hmm. Or am I adventuring? Um, and so if I'm trying to hammer it out, I, I, I pick a, a, uh, probably a 32. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would 
the shape of that 32, I would adjust based on the conditions. <clears throat> uh, in New England, you know, the, the soil is pretty sandy. We tend not to have um, real mud. I mean, you can get it in mud season uh, mm-hmm. when there's just so much water in the ground, but I very seldom legislate for mud. Um then I would say if I'm just trying to have an adventure, uh, I'm going for the bigger tire. I like a tire like the uh, WTB Nano that has a pretty aggressive side uh, tread, but it's a it's a, it's a, a real what's the it's not a square tire. It's a it's a more of a rounded tire, and it has a mm-hmm. high center line. So if the ground is firm, you it's a forty, but you can still roll pretty quickly on it. Yeah. Uh, but if you get into rocks and whatever, it's got tread that will get you through. So I like that tire a lot. Um, but yeah, to me, it's it's if I'm if I'm just out to have fun, I want to be comfortable and I want I want that. I want the volume and um, I want something that is going to handle whatever nonsense comes your way. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um I more and more, I just concede that like, I'm not going to stay with really fast people. Um, and that I would rather just ride slower and not have to pull over for a flat or something else. Yeah. I think, I think being able to run tubeless has changed my calculus on that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't expect to flat, um, but if, you know, the day is going to be four to six hours or or even more in the saddle, uh, I, I'm not thinking about speed, really. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about having the tire that will get me there, <laughs> that will take me all the way. Um, and I used to ride file treads quite a bit because I was trying to go fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't really run file treads very much anymore. If I run a gravel tire, it's probably going to have some pretty reasonable tread on it. Yeah, I uh, there have been some gosh, I'm having trouble thinking of one of them. There's a continental uh, that is really nice. It's uh, kind of a a diamond file uh, pattern for the main tread um, and then some blocks on the side. And that's a. That's a pretty dynamite tire. Uh, I like it a lot. Um, and then recently, it was uh oh, it was the the Panracer Gravel King SS Plus, which is kind of herringbone uh, in the middle with uh, lengthwise running blocks on the side. So it's not like so much individual blocks, but it's uh, uh, I don't even know entirely how to what to call it, but yeah, there are blocky things on the side. Blocky things, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they are they run together a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that tire I like a whole lot because it it rolls really nicely on the road. Um, and uh, in in the dirt, um. I run the 38 millimeter width. Um, and so it's always got plenty of volume for the sort of dirt I'm rolling over. Um, 
you know, and rock and whatnot. Um, but it's a pretty quick rolling tire. And that's, I, I think it's just, uh, I think the tendency to default to something with a lot of blocks um, is overdone. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. You can accomplish an awful lot traction wise just with sheer surface area. Yeah. Surface area and lower pressure mm-hmm. uh, will do a lot for you. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the other things that you bring up that I didn't even touch on was tire pressure. Uh, if I'm running a 38 millimeter tire, I don't pump it north of 40 PSI. Right. Same. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I might do like 36 front, 38 front and 40 rear. I think maybe I've taken my rear tire up to 42 PSI, you know, so let's make yeah. a liar of me. Well, I mean, when you want to go, yeah, I mean, I adjust the tire pressure depending on um, how, sh- like if the ride is short, I'll, I think it'll be quicker and I'll run a higher pressure. If I'm going to be on it a long time, I'll run a lower pressure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I can absorb, I can absorb, you know, an hour and a half of punishment, but no, after that, you know, it really starts to, uh, build up in my body. So then I'm going to give myself a little more slack. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing is that tires generally have kind of a, uh, a sweet spot in terms of mm. inflation, you know, where, you know, yeah, you might you might actually cut rolling resistance a little bit by pumping them up some more, but you know, you start losing traction and that gets into other rolling resistance issues that start to cancel out what your gains were. Um, so when I see somebody taking a 40 millimeter tire up to 60 PSI, it's like, no, 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 don't, don't, that's not the (laughs) way to go. Yeah. 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 I, um, this will embarrass you maybe, but I, you know, I'm a, I'm a tire pincher. I'm a tire, like, you know, I, I pump my tire and I don't believe what the gauge tells me. I just don't, you know, there's a number there, but it's not digital and that's not a precision instrument. So I give it the pinch test and I liken it to, if you are um, cooking a steak or a burger, you, you can reach out and touch it. If you poke it, you can feel how firm it is and you should be able to tell, you know, an, uh, 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 someone who does this professionally can tell how well done the steak is by touching it. They don't need to put a thermometer in it. Oh, um, okay. Uh, You're not, you were not aware of this? Nope. I don't yeah. cook steaks. So there's that. Uh, I mean, I don't either. I'm very, very seldom. But, you know, even with a piece of chicken, you can touch it. And the, the more firm it is, the more well done it is. Okay. So there's okay, a point scales. where it, yeah, yeah. Right. There's a point where it stops being like squishy, and that's when it's done. And so, if you're cooking professionally, you develop this touch. And I, I think I have this same thing for tires. You know, I, I, I squeeze them all the time, and I think, yeah, what's that going to ride like? I, I think I know now. Mm. Mm. Um. So you know, like I could tell you, it's 36. I know that it's under 40 psi. Uh-huh. I can look at the gauge and tell you that. Uh-huh. But as far as like knowing what that sweet spot is, that's a thing I've developed by touch. Yeah, I I would do well, even though I don't believe I inher- uh, inherently have uh, that sense of touch. Um, I need to do something because the floor pump that I keep 
in Memphis is my 33-year-old Silka. Mm. Um, and it has a gauge that um, is as likely to say that the tire is at 45 PSI as it is at 22. Yeah, I think those analog gauges are, you know, they're good ballparks. Oh, this one's not even ballpark. This is, yeah. you know, like continent. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I'll I'll pump yeah. 10 strokes and it'll say something. And then if I just tap the the floor pump on on the floor of the garage a little bit, you know, the needle will move. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't believe any of them. And I'm not I also don't um you know, if you say to me, oh, I run, I run 22 pounds in, in these tires for all whatever's, I think to myself, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the only thing you know is that your digital gauge told you 22 PSI. But as far as what that actually is and how it translates uh, in the tire and on the terrain, I don't think you know a thing. I think if you, you have a number, you have a data point, and that's great, uh, but without correlating it, and so I, I prefer the touch method. And I know that there are a lot of engineers out there cringing or uh, crying into their uh, IPAs. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I want to be a little uh, – I got to feel the bike. I got to feel the bike and know that it's right. All right. It, to, to me, it's like you grab your brakes and you think, is, is this right? Is, is this the tension I want in my brakes? Yeah, I, I – yeah. Yeah, I hear you on that. Um, I've always been a stickler for making sure that the throw, uh, you know, the free stroke on my levers was equal left to right. Right. I, I'm kind of nutty obsessive that way. Yeah. Yeah, I have the same. Yeah, it's the same. If I tie my shoes, you know, I do commit the sin of running also. And if I'm going on a long run, I tie my shoes. And if the left is tighter than the right, that, that can't, that doesn't. Oh, that won't work. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. I, uh, a lot of my cycling shoes are lace up and yeah, they, they are equal left to right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I feel the same way about tires and I may even do a different tire for a different pressure front to back, but they have to feel sure. right to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alrighty. Well, I think we've, uh, this, this horse, uh, has a little, little more life in it. it I think. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to leave it so that it can recover. Yeah. Yeah. We'll circle back to this topic. Right. Somebody else is going to come up with a fresh question. That's going to make me smack my forehead. Yeah. Yeah. So, alrighty. What's your pick this week? Um, well, at the risk of finding myself in a hole after my pull and then continuing to dig, I'm going to recommend a small volume written by an Italian physicist named Carlo Rovelli. <laughs> That's my pick for the week. <laughs> if, if anything I said in the first... You're a long position on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anything I said in the first part of the show made you think, hmm, then get this book. I think most of you are probably like, what is he talking about? But anyone whose interest was piqued, um, Carlo Rovelli is a brilliant scientist. Uh, he's also a bit like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson oh, in that huh. he has a remarkable talent for communicating difficult concepts in simple prose. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. So he Rovelli um, works in a field called uh, loop quantum gravity, which is not a thing that most of us news to me have any uh, feeling for. Uh, but he also do, has done a series of essays um, for newspapers about basic physics. And uh, many of them have been collected into various books. Uh, he wrote a book called The Order of Time, uh, which came out in 2017. And it's a small, readily digestible book. Uh, and when I read it, it changed me. Oh. Yeah. It's one of those. Right. So one thing I learned is how limited I am in my perceptions. And that's a valuable realization because <laughs> when I'm riding my bike, I regularly perceive difficulty or pain or at the very least discomfort. And one of the things deeper knowledge like this gives you is a way to break down those feelings into their constituent parts, uh, rather like meditation might, uh, and to distance yourself from the most intense parts of the suffering. Uh, uh -huh. Again, I know this will seem like a big leap to a lot of listeners, but for $20 US and a few hours of reading, it might be worth finding out. It's not, I think it's probably 150 pages. Um, it's a nice little volume. Uh, it's broken up into uh, small chapters. You can do it and, and it, it will change your perspective. This might be a fun one for me to listen to on the bike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As I'm tearing around little single track trails, trying to keep the bike upright. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Or cool. put it on the back of the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Great epiphanies yeah. are there to be had. What have you got this week? Uh, well, based on my sample size of two, that is <laughs> Northern California and the Mid-South, I think there's a 50% chance that in the last week, all you listeners, your home has had lows below freezing, highs above 70, and rain. There is a chance I could be wrong about that, but I am right about the following. If you have had those three climatic occurrences in the last week, then I can recommend the Castelli <laughs> Gabba Ross. If you're not familiar with the GABA, it's a short sleeve jacket that is highly water resistant, has pockets in the back, and provides just enough insulation to be warm down into the 50s. For you, sir, it's going to be warm until about 25 degrees yeah, Fahrenheit. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate um, that. In addition to the GABA, Castelli offers the Profetto, which has long sleeves, and then also the Profetto Light, which is a lighter version of the GABA uh, and short-sleeved for warmer temperatures than the GABA. Because it is designed around short-sleeves, the GABA that is, uh, but also true of the Perfetto Light, the idea is that you wear it with arm warmers, like Castelli's water-resistant Nanoflex ones. Mm -hmm. Unlike most water-resistant or waterproof jackets, this one has some stretch in it, thanks to Gore-Tex Infinium Windstopper in the front and rear of the jacket. And they actually use two different flavors of Infinium Windstopper, which, I, dude, I really don't understand the differences, but they even have numbers for them. Uh, it also features a drop tail to reduce just how much rain will soak your chamois, um, which is nice. Um, 
<laughs> I, I just uh, I just conjured. Oh, that really soaks my chamois. As a, <laughs> that's a new, new yeah yeah sorry. Yep. Um, and because it's a Castelli, it comes in six sizes, from small to triple extra large. Um, and while you may think you don't know anybody who would wear the triple extra large, uh, if you're a large in volet. Uh, or Pearl Izumi or one of the other American brands, you will be an XL in Castelli. Mm-hmm. Their stuff runs a full size smaller than American brands. Yep. Um, and why that continues to be the case, I really have no idea. Uh, at least they do have a sizing chart on their site that will help confirm that for you. Um <laughs> So I was just earlier this morning looking at the uh, the forecast for the next week in Memphis. And John, as you can see, there is a ginormous pile of oh, yeah. Lycra type clothing on my bed. Can confirm. Yes. Uh, so uh, the next week of weather in Memphis calls for highs in the 60s and 70s and frequent rain and some nights below freezing. Uh <laughs> So I anticipate that uh, both my Profeto Light and my GABA Ross will be in, shall we call it regular rotation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially because I don't really know what time of day I'll be riding. You know, it's just whenever I can kind of jam it in. Um, but, uh, you know, if you do sometimes ride in rain and it's not, say, 80 degrees and lovely, uh, even as it's raining. This is the sort of thing I would encourage you to give a try to. Um, and honestly, you know, I know some people are going to say $199 for the GABA is a lot of money. What you get for $199 uh, makes this actually, I think, a bargain. It's it's really one of the most impressive pieces I own. I like about the Castelli stuff that it all sounds like a coffee order. <laughs> I'd like a Perfetto with cream, please. Uh, two Gabbas. The second one is a double. And, uh, you know, like all their all their stuff has that vibe. Yeah. I mean, I would totally put whipped cream on a Gabba. Yeah. It's yeah. better that way. Yeah. Maybe even drizzle some caramel. I mean, if you can stand the calories. Okay, no, no whipped cream or caramel. <laughs> <laughs> this boy has some work ahead of him. Oh, all righty. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of the Pace Line. Um, it looks like I've got everything squared away so that I can continue for us to record while I'm in Memphis. So I think we will uh, have a show of a probably not remotely different flavor, but I will be producing it from a different place and. Uh, My voice might sound a little different due to a different microphone, but we should be coming to you next week, even though I'll be in a different place. Both of us from the Eastern time zone. No. One of us from Central, one from Eastern. Right. Memphis is over the line. We're at Memphis is over a lot of lines. Let's be honest about this. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, yeah. Um, alrighty. Uh, just a little reminder. We're going to continue to drop a couple of other podcasts into your feed, and we do hope that you will give them a listen and enjoy them maybe. Um, and uh, if, 
if you're having to resort to listening to us on the site and would rather us be in some feed that you subscribe to, uh, like Stitcher, I think all of the podcasts are showing up in Stitcher now, but if there's one of those other services you'd like, just drop a note in our comments uh, and I will I will put in a request for that. Oh, uh, send us more questions. Questions are fun. If you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.